Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 270. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of Lend at Fintech. Today's episode is sponsored by Lendit Fintech Digital, the new online community for financial services innovators. Today's challenges are extraordinary, with the upheaval affecting all areas of finance. More than ever before, we need to come together as an industry to learn from each other and make sense of this new world. Join Lendit Fintech Digital to connect and learn all year long from your peers and from the fintech experts. Sign up today at digital.lendit.com. Today on the show, I am delighted to welcome Tim Flucker. He is the executive director and co-founder of Commonwealth. Now, Commonwealth is a really interesting organization. They are a nonprofit focused on helping the financially vulnerable gain, basically gain financial security. And they do this in a number of different ways. Uh, you know, I f- they first got on my radar with the BlackRock Savings Initiative that was announced last year. And uh, so I've been wanting to get Tim on the show for a while. And we talk about that initiative in some depth and how it's going to work and the impact that, that it might have. You know, we talk about the, the challenges, the biggest challenges for this group, the lower and middle income consumers who are struggling with financial security. And we talk about the role of government and some a new initiative, that uh, new guidance that came out of the, the CFPB. We talk about income volatility and uh, and the challenges there. And we talk about how Commonwealth is looking to work with fintechs and how they do work. Uh, and we and, and Tim sort of gives uh, gives his perspective on, on what's happened over the last decade and why he is actually optimistic about the future. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Hi, Peter. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so you know you've been doing this for a long time now, but maybe you could, if you could, cast back, uh, I don't know, eighteen, twenty years, whenever it was, to when you started. Tell us about what you were thinking about when you started Commonwealth. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it feels like a long time ago, but uh, really, the the thing that brought the three of us who started the organization together uh, was this idea that we have spent a lot of time in this country thinking about you know, needing to keep roofs over our head and, and food on the table for everybody. And that's, that's critical. Um, we haven't succeeded, but we all understand that thinking about how to solve really poverty. But what hadn't been, uh, was kind of a new idea that inspired us was the sense that if you're serious about lasting change in households, um, you really have to focus on what people own and their assets. And that idea just made a ton of sense to me. And uh, I, I ended up connecting with a, a finance professor, a uh, guy named Peter Tufano, who had relatively recently been tenured, uh, and a, a third gentleman who had been both a community organizer and a banker uh, throughout the 1980s. And we came together because we thought this idea of helping low-income, moderate-income families build some assets and wealth deserved our attention, deserved some, some real effort. And, uh, you know, there's sort of three things that I look back and I see brought us together. One was at that point, which was, you know, 1999, 2000, it really felt like there were revolutions in technology mm-hmm. that made new ideas possible. Um, the thing I really remember was just this radical idea that, that regular people, even low-income people, could access the internet, you know, and use technology for themselves. And a lot of people thought that was not, you know, wasn't clear that that was, uh, was really true. Uh, and the second thing was a sense that um, 
you know, we needed, we needed to, some ands instead of some ors, you know, that if we were serious about solving big problems, we needed to tap into technology firms and, and large financial service firms and also be able to go out into communities and talk directly to consumers and the ability to kind of bridge, uh, bridge that gap uh, felt really powerful. So I guess, actually, I guess those are two things. So yeah, those were, that was the, 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 what brought us together. Okay. And so maybe, you know, you, you've obviously done, you know, you've done a lot of things over the last 20 years. Maybe you can talk about, firstly, maybe just talk about how you describe Commonwealth today. Let's just start off with that and then we can dig into some of the history. Yeah. Well, you know, we are structured as a not-for-profit. So for us, it starts with the mission and the mission is financial security and opportunity for low and moderate income families, you know, really sort of hardworking people who, who don't have a whole lot. And uh, so then the next question is, that's a, a big mission. What do you bring to it? And right. I like to say we, we bring innovation and influence. We're in this really fortunate position that we get to um, look for, for challenges that families are facing and try to figure out solutions and do that with an emphasis on social impact first always knowing that if we can't figure out a way for it to be sustainable, we won't really achieve anything. Uh, so we still have that constraint. But that speaks to, to designing new product ideas, sometimes new policy ideas, trying to do it rooted really in the customer, in, the, in that hardworking, uh, often, say, single parent holding down a couple of, of jobs, um, just trying to make it through the month. Uh, and then the second side is influence. You know, when we do this innovation work and we, we come up with something that we have evidence really works. You know, people want it and, and when they use it, they're better off. And we think there's some way that it can be delivered sustainably. Then our theory of how we make a difference in the world is to take that to market actors and policymakers who have a lot more reach than we do and, and say, here's something to, to really look at and see what you can, you can do with it. Okay. Okay. And so then maybe let's just, I'd love if you could focus on two or three things you know, over the last, you know, since you began, particularly maybe even in the last 10 years that you would say have been, you know, successful, you know, partnerships, ventures, you know, projects, whatever you want to call it. What, what, what are some of the things you've done? Yeah, no, and thanks for the question. So we believe that uh, in many ways, savings is really the, the single most important thing for households. Mm-hmm. You know, the problem is that none of us like to save and it's, uh, it's not a, a fun thing. And so we began a while ago really uh, with this notion that if we could reward savings with chances to win prizes, that something as simple as that could really um, make a difference in making it uh, possible for people to save. So that simple idea, it turns out, was illegal in this country, more or less, uh, a decade ago. Hmm. And uh, so, you know, this is what we do. We found a loophole. We were able to test that idea initially with credit unions in the state of Michigan, we built out a body of evidence uh, that people would, would use it, and a lot of them would never have had savings before. And then we took that to policymakers in uh, more than 30 states now and Congress and got a little bill through Congress and have cleared away sort of the, the legal pathway to allow this product idea. And in parallel, we've seen an explosion of um, fintech startups that have seized on this idea, some uh, depositories, especially credit unions, and then you know, we're very excited that several years back now, uh, Walmart incorporated a prize-based savings feature onto their money card, which is mm-hmm. their premier prepaid card. Um, so that would be an example. We've done a, a ton of work to link up tax time and the large tax refunds that come from the IRS to working families um, to make that go or possible that it can go into savings. We actually pioneered and then the Obama administration introduced an option for families to have some of those refunds in savings bonds. 
Uh, so that would be another, another thing. More recently, very recently, we worked with an organization called the Workers Lab to test out what happens if you offer gig workers a chance for just emergency cash assistance. You say, something happens, we've got you, no questions asked, up to a certain dollar amount. Uh, so that was very recent. We have some uh, literature about that out on our site. Yeah, so that's just a quick tour of some things we've been up to. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then when you look at your 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 population, the lower lower and middle income you know people in this country who we've always we always hear they don't have they don't have very much savings. They they're struggling, and particularly they're they've been hit by the pandemic, you know, worse than than, than other other areas of the population. So, what is it? I mean, you, you talk about savings, but how can we change the? And that's a big question, but you know. What do they need most, I guess, is what I'm really trying to get at. Yeah, I really appreciate that question, Peter. So let me, I'll, I'll give you an unsatisfying answer, which is, you know, low and moderate income people are a huge universe increasingly in this country. And so it varies a lot, you know, just as it does for any population. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the cross-cutting themes? Well, I guess, you know, one thing is that the amount of anxiety financial anxiety that most working people in this country live with is truly extraordinary. So at a cross-cutting level, uh, we want to look for things that are going to bring down that temperature a little bit in these consumers' lives. And uh, so I would say, you know, yes, savings is the thing that we, we think of first in that, that having even a modest amount, you know, even a few hundred bucks set aside really makes a difference in how you feel when something unexpected happens. But, you know, there clearly have to be other ways to bring that down that temperature. The second thing that feels cross-cutting is that, that that experience of living, you know, very much in the moment, in the present, and thinking about next week or sometimes, you know, this week, and will the cash be there to cover the rent and this sort of thing, it, it tends to squeeze out the ability to, to kind of be hopeful about the longer term. Right. And so, you know, I think we really need to look for ways to make that hope you know, real for people. What are the things they can do for themselves longer term and oftentimes for their kids? And I guess the last kind of cross-cutting thing I'd say is some of this starts with simply seeing these customers, you know, really understanding that reality in whatever your business is, you know, whether it's uh, credit or insurance or what have you, kind of going the extra, extra measure to really understand what that experience of living very, very tight uh, over long periods of time is like and then designing on the basis of that. Right, because you know it reminds me. I have a I have a friend who is financially struggling, and she said something to me uh, many years ago that has stuck with me. She said, "When she had an unexpected expense come up, and I actually helped her out a little bit, but she said, when you're living tight, and and then something bad happens, he says you can't think about anything else. That's just all you think about every minute of every day." How am I going to get out? How am I going to, it was something with her daughter. And it's like, how is that, how are we going to get out of this? And it's just, it struck me like, so that's all you think about. And I think people like us who, 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 who are, you know, who are comfortable and most people listen to this podcast are comfortable. I think we forget that how hard it is when you are living paycheck to paycheck and then something bad happens. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's something that I think yeah. it's good to, re- good to remind ourselves yeah, from time to time. So I want to move on and uh, talk about the CFPB because uh, I, I think it was just like, actually just this month, I think it was new guidance from the CFPB encouraging, you know, automatic enrollment of employees in emergency savings programs. And I think, you know, we've done it with 401ks and that's been a, a huge success. And I, I think this is a great, this is a really great move. But, but I guess it brings up, a, brings up a question that I wanted to ask you. Is it, are employers the key 
to increasing savings rates in this country? Well, I think they're definitely one of the keys. Absolutely. And so why? I mean, the first thing that I imagine many of, of your listeners know is that savings is not an, an obvious business case. And the, the smaller the balances and the shorter the durations, the tougher that business case gets. You know, in the extreme case, someone who wants to be able to set aside 50 or 100 bucks, you know, in this month, and then next month, draw that 50 or 100 bucks out, and then the next week, put it back. You know, how do you make money on that? And so this is one of the, the geniuses of the, of the workplace is the reason that an employer, you know, cares about the financial security and stability of their workers is they're not trying to make money on a sort of product level, you know, P&L. Uh, they're really in it for other reasons. So, so that, that's one reason why we think the workplace is really powerful. Uh, a little bit more sort of, you know, operational, they're right there at the moment of the income, right? And so there's just a ton of uh, research and just basic intuition that the ability to be uh, right there at that moment of, of earning the wage and say, you know, would you like to use split direct deposit and have a little bit of that paycheck go into a savings account? It's the same rationale that gets money into retirement savings. Uh, that's just very, very powerful. Um, and then the last point is that, you know, employers, of course, we all read about the changing nature of work and, and, and all of that uh, is happening for sure. But for people who work for, um, you know, firms or institutions today, you know, they're used to getting um, benefits and uh, some essentially financial advice, you know, explicitly or implicitly. So to tap that infrastructure and that system uh, around this issue is just, is just so compelling. So that's a long way of saying, yes, we, we believe a lot uh, in the power of the employer around financial security and savings. And, uh, you know, if I could, maybe just to flesh out what you were alluding to from the CFPB, what they have done is provide a, it's called a CAST, a Compliance Assistance Sandbox Template. It's a catchy title. But what it really <laughs> amounts to is, is a, a guidelines for safe harbor for firms that want to try this, as you said, automatically enrolling people into emergency savings. And uh, we have right now, um, under something I hope we'll have a chance to talk about, we are a part of uh, BlackRock's Emergency Savings Initiative. And what that means to this conversation is we have both our time and access to some of the best legal minds in the country uh, that we can bring to firms that want to test this out, that say, I'd like to figure out, you know, what happens if we automatically enroll our workers into an emergency savings uh, option, obviously with opt-out and so forth. You know, it doesn't deliver the way it has in the retirement space. Can we see those effects in terms of workers' uh, productivity and just overall financial well-being? Um, so this is a, a blatant advertisement. If, if that sounds like you uh, and you work for a company, call us up because right now, you know, for a limited time, we're in a position to really offer a suite of resources that's pretty extraordinary to help you act on that. Right, right. So I, I wanted to actually dig into that because, you know, I, I'd seen the Commonwealth name around here and there and then and then I saw the BlackRock Savings Initiative come out and I, I, I was, you know, obviously BlackRock, the world's uh, largest asset manager with I don't know how many trillions they've got now, but it's many. When they do something like this, they have the power to move the needle and I saw you guys, the Commonwealth name, I think it was, is it, who was the other, there was another organisation that's part of that as well from memory. Yeah. Um, you can maybe you can she can she say that, but maybe how did you how did you kind of get involved with with this, and what is Commonwealth specifically bringing to the table for the the BlackRock Savings Initiative? Yeah, yeah, no, um, I mean, like you, when we first uh, learned that BlackRock was asking itself, and this is through their social impact, you know, team, 
what could BlackRock really do that would be impactful and, and make sense, you know, for their firm, given their capabilities and their reputation and the like? And we were fortunate to get in conversation with them and we started talking about this importance and centrality of savings and, you know, through ongoing conversations with them and, and, and many other conversations I'm sure they had, they really came to, to see this as the issue to, you know, just to dig into. And so the Emergency Savings Initiative is, is Commonwealth and the Financial Health Network and the Common Sense Lab out of Duke. And the three of us are anchoring this uh, really ambitious effort to move the needle on, on emergency savings. And uh, the way I think about this is um, really on the supply side. Um, so what does that mean? It means, uh, you know, what is it that will make it possible for a large employer to offer uh, its workforce a chance to build emergency savings? How do we make the retirement system, which in many ways, you know, is just a fantastic piece of infrastructure and so well established, how do we make that work so that people who need to build up modest amounts of liquid savings can do so? Uh, how do we work with fintechs to make this more possible, you know, for those that are, are, are interested in, and inclined? And so, uh, so our work in that is, is just that, is to work with those partners. Um, my colleagues are working with UPS, for example, uh, and some record-keeping firms that, that I don't think we can, we can disclose right now uh, to, to make this possible on a very large scale. And uh, the legacy that I think we'll, we will leave is part uh, demonstrating that this can work, that you know, firms you would recognize the names of who have large numbers of, of workers or customers or stakeholders uh, will do this, can do this, and it achieves real impact. Uh, so, so that's what we're up to and we're, we're super excited about it. And so is there, like, is, is there a duration for this program? Is there an end goal where you say, right, we're done? I mean, what, what's the future of the program? Yeah, so we're about midway through a three-year initiative. So we have another through the end of 2021. Uh, and our focus right now is to uh, open up really the kind of the, the, the channels, if you will, that I spoke about, large employers, the retirement system, payroll companies, uh, fintechs, and then this uh, automatic enrollment that I described. Uh, mm -hmm. If we can show substantive progress, often with really marquee brands in each of those categories, um, that will be, uh, that's really what we're, what we're aiming for. Right, right. Okay. So then I was also reading about another, you know, marquee brand that you're working with, uh, JP Morgan Chase, uh, the country's largest bank uh, by assets. So maybe you could share what, what you're doing with, uh, with uh, JP Morgan. Yeah. Well, we, we've, you know, actually had a, a long relationship with JP Morgan Chase and, uh, you know, proud of that. And, they are supporting us to work on what we call emerging technologies. And, uh, you know, this is just the, the basic storyline that I think we've all read, that there are a handful of technologies that, you know, pretty indisputably are transforming the world around us and will for decades. And so we're talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning. We're talking about distributed ledger and blockchain, things of that nature. And so the work with Chase is taking just a piece of that, uh, the AI piece, and saying, how is this relevant to underserved consumers? And what do we need to know for that revolutionary technology to produce you know, good positive impact in the lives of, of low moderate income people? And so the work for us is um, some original consumer research with underserved customers. What do you know about this? What are your fears? What are your perceptions? Uh, what are your aspirations? Uh, crucially, are there use cases that by going in deep in underserved communities, we might raise up that might otherwise be overlooked. 
and then to take those insights and work arm in arm with fintechs who are excited to, to kind of act on them and see what we can learn from that mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, we should have insights and guidance that, you know, as a, as a not-for-profit, we just put out into the world for, for the public good uh, that we hope and believe will shape and influence the development of those critical technologies. Right, right. So let's talk about technology for a minute and talk about the fintech space because, you know, I, from my perspective, we've really, we've come a long way. I even think in the last five years, there are many, uh, like just to just take Overdrafts, for example, which is one of my pet peeves. I think it's a, it's a horrible product and, you know, banks have, have made you know huge amounts of money on it over the years at the expense of pretty much exclusively the lower middle income consumer, and we've got a bunch of fintechs now that are really addressing that problem head on. I think, I think Dave might have been the first one that really built their business to try and create a, a better product than an overdraft. But there are now many. It's almost becoming table stakes now for fintechs. If you're trying to go after that population, you need to have something like that. So maybe. I'd, I'd love to get you don't you don't necessarily have to name names, but you, you I'm, I'm sure you're following these these companies as well. What are some of the approaches, not necessarily just on overdrafts, but that really fintechs that you think are moving the needle? What are the approaches they're using that really are helping lower and middle income consumers? Yeah, I mean that's obviously an enormous question, and so I'll, I'll just there's two that I wanted to mention. I mean, one we have just seen that. Uh, so you're, the way you cast the question, sort of between the banks and everybody else, that in the middle there are these prepaid providers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we first started this work, they were sort of this uh, stepchild, you know, that, that uh, we didn't know what to do with uh, as an industry <laughs> or, or something. But uh, those prepaid cards have really graduated to the point where they fill, fill a niche that is not otherwise filled. Um, right. I mentioned we worked with, with uh, Walmart and their vendor Green Dot around their money card. You know, I'm not advocating for that one as an example, but, you know, they have enormous scale. And if you look at their, their customers, that is clearly filling a need in a way that other products weren't. Uh, you know, I, maybe you're, you prefer, I don't name names, but one that we've gotten to know is Mochafy, which is a, a prepaid card that is um, proudly black owned and, and black led and is specifically serving uh, and aiming to serve black customers and bring a suite of products together on that platform uh, that frankly would be tough to get from other sources. So, so I, I think there's, there's a lot there, even if that doesn't feel like the, the latest or the newest. The second thing I want to mention is a little more far out there is, you know, as I mentioned at the outset, really the big motivating idea for me personally and, and for us uh, was what can we do to strengthen the, the family balance sheet, you know, get some, right. some assets. And uh, there's an, an organization called uh, Universal Basic Data Income, UBDI. And what they're, what they're trying to do is figure out how the data that we all are generating, you know, we can own that data and monetize it at the individual level. So I think that's, you know, I love that because that's a, it's a source of found money for households who really need it, or at least potentially. Uh, so very, very excited about that. And, and, you know, there are some overlaps between this emerging tech concept I talked about and those sorts of individual enterprises that are asking, uh, where does the data come from and what can be done with it? Right, right. No, I think that's a great idea. And I feel like, you know, we now, it's, it's interesting. I, I feel like this decade we're going to make, I, I think we'll have some changes when it comes to owning your own data 
and you know, I'd love to see. I think eventually you're going to get you're going to grant permission to anybody who wants to use your data. That's where we're moving. I don't know how long it's going to take, but there's lots of companies out there that I know of that are really attacking this problem head on, and uh, I think it, it's going to be interesting. But I want to I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about. Uh, something else we haven't really discussed, but I feel like it's a huge issue for so many people, and that is income volatility, where so many people don't have a W two income that is the same every single every single pay period. They're they're gig workers, or they're they're, they're working part time jobs where their hours are, are change a lot. So you know, when you when you look at those people, how are you thinking about them, and how can we address this volatility problem from their of their income? Yeah, I don't have a grand solution to this one. I mean, the first thing I'll say is, you know, it, it, at the risk of being a broken record, we do such a, a poor job on savings that if we can lift everybody up and having that baseline of savings, I think that is probably the single biggest hedge on the volatility. Yep. Uh, you know, I think the second thing to say is that in terms of the changing nature of work, you know, there's clearly a, a, a need that no one has quite figured out how to fill yet to replicate the stability and the infrastructure of that, you know, old school employer. And I, you know, I, I, I predict that that will get, fit, you know, that will get filled at some point in some way. Um, but we're in a moment when, when we don't have great answers to that. Although I've seen, and I'm sure you have too, some some startups and fintechs that are are trying to to plug that gap. Yep. You know, and then the third thing is, I just think we have to at least keep in the conversation where are the limits of what the private sector or fintech can do, and and where is there a, a need for a, a broader government solution? And uh, it, you know, maybe it is around volatility, but increasingly that's part of the political conversation, and so it yeah. makes sense for us to keep that in mind too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so then if 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 there's a, a fintech uh, CEO listening to this, and they're they're interested in kind of a lot of the things you're talking about, how do you engage with fintechs? What's the message that you want for them to to know about Commonwealth? Yeah, I mean, we, we're an outside ally that can help you get where you want to go, I think is probably the, the quickest answer. And what does that look like? Uh, sometimes we do research together, either with your existing customer base or a customer base you would like to serve. And, you know, obviously we work out those details. We really like to, to test actual ideas uh, in partnership. And as I mentioned on the emerging tech work that we're launching, we're actually actively looking for partners who want to test things. Uh, we can often bring outside, you know, additional resources so that it's not a case of what do I have to take off my roadmap to test something um, or even better if it's something that's already on your roadmap. You know, and then the last thing we do just straight up advise uh, fintechs in some cases, um, particularly on things we've spent a good deal of time on. I mentioned the prize link savings as an example of that, the use of prizes to make saving fun. And, you know, for us, is, the, the threshold question is, is this on mission? Is this about trying to make financial security and opportunity happen for, for low moderate income people. If that, that test is met, then really the, the sky's the limit in terms of how we can work with fintechs. Right, right. Okay. Okay. And then what about the government? We've talked about the CFPB already, and I'd love to sort of know, I mean, what, what are you working on right now with the regulators? What, 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 are some of the, what are some of the policy goals you have that you still want that you think would, would help this uh, you know, community? Yeah, well, we have talked about one of them. We, you know, at a very sort of tactical level, right? We we really believe this uh, this idea of automatic enrollment needs to be tested, and and you know, a little more broadly, um, that's a comfortable place for us to be thinking about a very specific idea that can be advanced that has a policy dimension. Uh, having said that, you know, the second thing that you know really for twenty years has dogged us is that getting to a place where everybody has access is really really tough. 
you know, one click down, everybody having access to a savings opportunity, even if we get all the employers is tough. And we know that, frankly, the Treasury Department has capabilities that nobody else has in that right. regard. Right. Um, so it's been a perpetual uh, interest of ours. You know, is there a way to, to use some of that apparatus and those unique capabilities to make sure everybody has a good place to save? So that would be something that's an evergreen uh, interest of ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So then how, how are you guys funded? Where are you, what's, what's your source of, uh, you know, of operational capital? <laughs> yeah, no, great question. You know, it varies a little bit year to year, but roughly three quarters of, of our revenue does come from philanthropy which is a very privileged place to be, uh, but it, it allows us to kind of put the, the impact metrics higher up on the, on the hierarchy. Right. And you know, roughly a quarter comes from some form of, of earned revenue, uh, consulting contracts and the like. So, so that's really, uh, that's, that's us. Right. So then we're running out of time, but I want to, I want to get a couple more things in here. I'm, I'm curious about if, you know, you've, you've been doing this for a while and, you know, put the pandemic aside for a second, because that was, that's really a, you know, unforeseeable event. But I, I'm just curious if you look back at the like, let's just say the last decade after the financial crisis, we had that, and then we've been in this recovery for, you know, for about a decade. Are you, are you surprised we haven't made more progress than we have when it comes to really the the financial health of the the lower and middle income consumer? Yeah, I don't know if I'm surprised, but I think the key point there is is just to repeat it. We haven't made the progress that we that we should and that we need to, uh, and I guess I'm leery of trying to put a silver lining, you know, uh, label on on the events of this year. I think they're they're too painful and too horrific, but I do think it's really brought home, you know, just how many of us are pretty close to the edge and how it just can't go on like this. So I. I uh, I guess I'd prefer to think about that question about what does the next 10 years look like? And right. this, you know, this is a turning point. And, you know, I, the other thought that I just want to try to express is that everywhere I turn, I, it's so clear people are desperate for, for institutions they can trust in and that, you know, we have a lot at stake in that collectively. Right. And, you know, Fintechs are not, you know, first order institutions that everybody thinks of in terms of shaping their sense of of our society. But there are these examples of fintechs that transparently put out a business model that say, look, I I only win if you win, consumer, right? Right? You know, that feels pretty different. And so I I take a lot of um, optimism from those little signs of, of different ways of thinking, different ways of relating to customers, high degree of empathy, and really seeing where people are at. And I think those are things that, um, that I take, you know, just, I feel a bode well for, for what we can accomplish as a, as a field, as an industry. Right. So then just, just expanding on that as, as the last question here, um, I mean, and obviously there's, there's some of this as, as a political kind of conversation that I don't really want to get into at all, but where would you like us to be? Um, where do you think we can get to as a country over this decade when it comes to, you know, savings and, and having a, a sort of a, a healthy kind of financial life for the vast majority of, of consumers? Well, I'll give you one, one answer. If we could, preferably in the first part of the next decade, <laughs> um, come to a, a statement about what sort of outcome is acceptable for us as a society and a country around a whole bunch of metrics, but even in just the personal finance space. Mm-hmm. You know, then I think we've, we've set the terms of the conversation. 
I just was recently reminded looking at some data that, you know, I don't remember the precise figures, but in Canada, they have some minuscule fraction of the population that, that's not part of the banking system, right? And, and in this country, it's not a very new idea, but there's a sizable fraction. You know, those are policy choices, right? right. <laughs> like these things can be, they are choices we make. And so I think we need to think about that instead of the hand wringing and the, you know, there's nothing to be done. It's just, it's just the nature of markets or it's just the nature of the world and say, actually, no, we probably do have choices to make about where the floor is in terms of household financial well-being. And if we get that nailed down in the first part of the decade, then I, I mean, you know this better than I do. There's a world of innovators out there right. that will operate in the envelope once it's established. Uh, but let's try to get clear on, on what the outcome we want to achieve in the next 10 years is. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great place to end. I feel like we have, you know, it, it, we have the capacity to do this. We have the capacity to solve this problem as a nation. And uh, I think I, I applaud you for the work you guys are doing. I think it's very important. We need, we need uh, organizations like you that are taking the lead here. So thanks very much for coming on the show today, Tim. Oh, thank you so much for the chance. I really appreciate okay. it. My pleasure. See ya. Great. Bye-bye. You know, Tim and I were chatting after we uh, stopped the recording, man, and we were, we were just commenting that, you know, this country, we, we have it in us to solve this problem, to really vastly reduce the numbers of people who are, you know, financially vulnerable. But it's, it's going to take a multi-pronged approach. It's going to take, I think, some, some, some regulatory uh, initiatives. It's going to take fintechs and banks really uh, working together to to create products that are uh, a win-win. There should not be a financial product available today that is win-lose, and we certainly have many of those kinds of products. That needs to go, and I think you know, there's, there's plenty of fintechs, as, as we said on the show, that are they're addressing certain areas in a, in a win-win way, and I think we are really going to have to rely on the entrepreneurs because this, this, this has to be, well, well, government have a role here. I think the, the entrepreneurs are going to really have to implement products, create products that, that actually help the lower and middle income consumer and you know, deliver products that really improve their lives. And I feel like that's one of the reasons why I'm excited about fintech. I feel we have a great, we have an obligation and an opportunity to change the world. And uh, you know, I'm excited about uh, what we can achieve uh, this this coming decade. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Lendit Fintech Digital, the new online community for financial services innovators. Today's challenges are extraordinary, with the upheaval affecting all areas of finance. More than ever before, we need to come together as an industry to learn from each other and make sense of this new world. Join Lendit Fintech Digital to connect and learn all year long from your peers and from the fintech experts. Sign up today at digital.lendit.com.